The theme with you this afternoon is uh, the nature of specific conditions. And with the talk with you this afternoon, we'd like to address this phenomenal world existence which we are living in, address some of the influential conditions that make events, look at our relationship to what seeing and knowing is from the standpoint of dharma uh, and truth. And then at the end, if there are any questions that you like to uh, ask, providing they're simple and easy to answer, I'll um, endeavour to respond uh, to them. We've touched uh, briefly little, uh, earlier on today in this wonderful capacity that we have to be aware, conscious, mindful human beings. And what's precious about this uh, element of human life, it gives us the potential and the possibility to see and explore more than what's immediately apparent. And that interest in what's deeper or more than immediately apparent is what these teachings are all about. <coughs> so if I take a, a couple of examples just to give you the, uh, the sense of this and the importance of conditions. We have here over the three or four days what we call the uh, DFP, Dharma Facilitators Program, which we're having a little discussion about relaunching the name. Uh, uh, actually because of this mildly problematic word, facilitators. <laughs> However, but for the moment, it's called DFP. And we, as well as others, have contributed to the forming of it together. And therefore, under this general umbrella concept, Another, a number of conditions take place and we put something together. The putting of it together had certain conditions before you and I arrived and upon arrival on Friday evening and then through the day. So something is formed together, we call the DFP. Within that there are a variety of conditions which uh, sustain it and hold it together with all the variation and we see the movement through time and then come tomorrow lunch at 12 o'clock tomorrow we uh, come to its close and we say aha the DFP it arose due to the conditions it sustained itself due to the conditions and it dissolved itself due to the conditions and it's a small representation and statement of how we relate to life. An, an event and situation moves together, stays in time, long time, short time, dissolved, 
gives rise to a new one, and we move through that. We have said a few times that if we grasp on to existence of, it will become problematic, and to a state it will become uh, it's a form of extremism through the grasping. So if, just using now the DFP as a simple model here, if there is the grasping onto its existence, there is a forgetfulness of the countless conditions which bring it together, and in the grasping on Dharma language it gains its own self-existence. It gains an importance independent of all the conditions. We forget the conditions and we grasp DFP. When that happens, the DFP member is a kind of metaphor for everything. When that happens and there is the fading, the dissolving, then we are then faced with the non-existence. So human beings who grab the presence of not understanding the movement through, but grab the presence of, including the presence of life, the presence of another, the presence of a place, the presence of a book, whatever, of an idea, of an experience. If we grab the presence of, then the non-existence of, DP fin DFP finishes, the non-existence becomes problematic. And then from the non-existence of, will come the wanting for the existence of. And therefore, human beings can find ourselves, through not understanding the conditions, living in a world where it appears all that matters is the self-existence of and its non-existence. We can live in a world as though that is the reality. And when we see in that way, we have problems. You and I could not think of a problem or an issue or a concern which in one way or the other isn't about the existence of or the non-existence of. If you come up with anything at the end of the talk, um, you may do. I haven't quite thought of anything yet in my poor small life. <clears throat> the other aspect of looking at the formation of uh, uh, c uh, conditions, and it isn't easy, some examples, like the next one, is fairly easy to comprehend. It's a little bit more challenging <coughs> when we look at um, something a bit closer to home, as the easy one. I always like working with the easy things and let others struggle with the hard ones. We'll take, because my eye fell on it, uh, the book. The book. We really give attention to the book, any book that arises. And then we look at how is this book formed together? And then we look at the conditions for it. First of all, trees. 
the cutting down of the trees, the movement of the trees, the, the transporters from one place to another. Oh, the book. Someone's got to write the book, prepare the book, etc. The designer, the layout, the, the printer, the person who ships it, the bookseller, etc. The buyer. So, right from the tree, in this case, all the way through the process, the chain or the links or the conditions make the book. And if one just took, as the example, one of those conditions out, there ain't no book. So a variety, you know, if, 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 if the person doesn't write the book, even just a cover if it's a diary or whatever, but there ain't no book. Somebody doesn't chop down the trees, there ain't no book. If a person doesn't uh, transport and he goes to the print factory and make the book, etc. So that throughout the whole process, there are all of these conditions which form together the idea, the concept, the book. Take out those conditions, ain't no book. What happens is, all too humanly enough, we forget all that formed the book. There is no book independent of all these conditions. And because we're so human, painfully human, we keep forgetting this and we give the book as if it had its own existence. And the proof of it is, often, not in the having of the book, but quite often in the losing of it. <laughs> in the losing of it. Some of us, Arden and I were talking a little bit about this, I find too. I have at home, I, I, love, I love books, I've always, since I was four years of age, I have just loved uh, reading, and it was rather ironic I should end up as a Buddhist monk in a Vipassana monastery where reading was banned. The, the one-liner of the Ajahn, Damodaro, uh, uh, was reading destroys practice. Practice, pachipa, practice, practice. And reading is destroying the Dharma. And really, God, he used to give us a hard time about any kind of reading that we did. So those of us who loved our reading, still remember, read some short text there, by candlelight, in my hut, in the night, because it almost felt subversive. <laughs> going, going against the patriarchal authority who condemned, re condemned reading. So sometimes, Rod and I were talking, and we have some books, that I have a lot more books, We've got a very modest, austere collection. I have about 2,000 uh, uh, books. And sometimes various friends, as we know, would come and house it and they borrow the book. And they always, why do they, people always borrow the book that I come home to look for? <laughs> and so then one's going through it. Oh, I know, etc. So I say, any holding to the existence of is the forgetfulness of the conditions which bring it together 
and in that forgetfulness there is a problem for us around existence and non-existence. If we're holding to the conditions of how wonderful it was with such and such a person in the past, and we're holding to the existence of that in the past, it will make the non-existence more problematic in the present. Because we can't see that non-existence actually requires conditions, or rather the absence of them. So it's a real challenge to live a free way of life where we give attention to the idea of existence, see any grasping that's going with it, there, and can we have so to speak, an equal eye to non-existence, to the absence of. Because life keeps appearing and showing itself to us, either as existence or non-existence. That's how life keeps showing it to us. It's not a problem in itself, but it's a problem through the grabbing and the forgetting of the conditions that give you make something possible. Yeah. In these older texts, just, uh, uh, the, 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 the um, Buddha uses a lovely term, and my other old teacher, Ajahn Buddha does. Still remember now, it's like, sometimes it happens, in all this millions of words in these, these texts and it's slightly ironic that, that teachers who uh, have no regard for the books find themselves born or reborn in the tradition which is slightly book mad with all of these texts that are, uh, that are available and sometimes in the uh, 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 relationship to this he, he, once he, he he found a word uh, uh, and realised it was a much more significant word than what was appreciated and the word is idea pachiata idea means this this and pachiata means conditions so an exploring human being interested in life and wishes to see life and events as clearly as possible is actually interested in the Dharma language of the conditions which give rise to this that's the interest what are the conditions which give rise to this and this has no existence of its own going back to the book going back to the DFP it has no existence of its own but it appears that way, but it's the support of these conditions. It's easy to give DFP as a, an example. It's just as easy to give it as an example with a book. A fairly obvious, tangible formations. But what about experience? How do we address it 
so that it really brings some real insight and understanding there. And what's the, what do we listen to deep, deep relative here, deep inside of ourselves to explore that? And I'll uh, just touch upon one of the uh, programs that we were given, I referred to it uh, earlier. And though we could say there are so many varieties of conditions, if one is inquiring to discover ida pachyata, the conditions that give rise to this, there are four primary ones. And dear old beloved Nagarjuna, who's another one of the gods, along with a few others we've named in the last day or two, speaks of four conditions, four specific, four important conditions, which really inquired into, meditated on, reflected upon, shared and discussed together, can genuinely open up the consciousness. One of them, very important one, is a... (coughs) The word is... Oh, God, what's the word? Hetu a causal condition. So, in other words, if something has happened which is affecting you, really, this is really affecting me, in a lovely, beautiful way, because this really touched me, it's really affected me, really wonderful experience, whatever, or extremely painfully, very difficult thing to have to deal with there. A question, no hierarchy, a question would be to ask, perhaps inwardly or with the support of other or others, what is a causal condition for this? What's the immediate sense of what brought this about? And truth must be, one of the best expressions of truth is honesty, is honesty. I remember, I don't know about, about, uh, about you, but it's going back to my monk days, or as I sometimes call them, monkey days, that some of us, and I was one of those, who liked to keep a journal when I was in the monastery, also discouraged as well, so more subversive activity. And so I would write my bits and pieces down in my diary and the challenges and the difficulties and the pains and being a monk and the rules and all the stuff that goes on in the mind of poor uh, monks and living with, apparently voluntarily, with 80 to 100 monks and nuns who one would never choose to live with. And then uh, on the other side of the Dharma Hall, over 100 nuns one or two one wouldn't really like to live with, but anyway. And or, so you have this <laughs> you know, monk and nun's life, you know, it's, romance is oozing out of the hut. And in a whole variety of ways there. And, and even, even uh, I could go on for a whole hour on this subject, talk about attraction and beauty. And the, the, the nuns, I have to say, um, as they do in Thailand, wearing white, and um, and some some of them 
you know, the eyelids were rolling over the top of their head with the sight of, uh, of that. And then <laughs> Ajahn Damodaro also uh, had an eye for this as well. And he said, when these lovely nuns doing their mindful, slow, meditative walking meditation, he would say to them, look, if ever you disrobe, this is the perfect training for the catwalk as a model. <laughs> Which is rather, uh, rather, rather sweet. <laughs> and <laughs> who are we the monks to disagree with such a, a, a perception? And in the uh, <coughs> dynamics of these uh, 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 <coughs> situations of the practice and the mindfulness and uh, uh, the meditations there, that the disciplines of all, all of that, I can't quite remember the theme, I went off the track a little bit here, but uh, of the thread of the connections in the, uh, in the monastery helps in a, way, in, a, in, a, in a way just to keep the focus and then some experience arises and then in the evening I'd write down in my diary, there, or in my, my little journal uh, there, and what I used to notice about truth and honesty, the wish to write it in a more pleasing way, more agreeable way, it always sticks to my more agreeable way. Not that anybody else is ever going to see it or read it and have no interest in it, but writing it in a way, a slight adjustment around the truth, the economising with the truth, as our politicians uh, with, we'll say. So we're talking about truth in if those who keep the diary or whatever or in the communication it's extremely challenging to be rather concentrated and precise and to the point about what we are saying truthful, truthfully without inflating it or exaggerating it and that can only come from a certain clarity and steady, steadiness to be able to communicate the truth. One can't communicate clearly there if there is projection and reaction. It's not possible. So, though there is the ethics of non-harming and non-exploitation and non-abuse, important as that is, but the Buddha has spoken regularly of the ethic, it's a great ethic of life, to find the truth and to find ways and means to communicate it well and clearly. That is the challenge. And if our inner life, not perfectly, has some well-being in it and some clarity with it, we are able to see and express much more clearly the example or the metaphor which is given is if the lake is clear and clean and pure um, and we look into the lake or the ocean is very, very calm by the rocks or whatever and looks into the water and because it's calm, it's clean and it's clear one can see much more. You can see the fish, one can see maybe see the, the, the bottom of the lake there and the algae and the rocks and all, all, all of that. 
and in a rather similar way. If there isn't the disturbances going on, if there aren't the waves, and the Buddha refers to the hindrances and uses water metaphors for this, so agitation would be ripples and waves inside of us, dullness and boredom would be kind of heaviness and uh, 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 cloudiness and dullness or, or, or whatever it might, might, might be, that our clarity means therefore there is some inquiry to ask ourselves what are the conditions to change the event, to change the situation, to change the way of looking. And to repeat, the first one is what seems to be a primary cause for what I'm experiencing. That would be the first. What is the primary cause for what I'm experiencing uh, uh, there? Coming back to honesty and truth with it. The second there is what are the supportive conditions? What are, what are the supportive kind of conditions there? And we need to cognize and need to be able to you know, recognize, the Buddha has used this language of name and form. We mustn't be shy of naming. And if the naming is, oh, one of the conditions cause one of the supportive conditions is I'm too demanding. One of the supportive uh, uh, conditions, I'm not really giving the situation enough attention. One of the supportive conditions is that we are pressed too close together. One of the supportive conditions, I'm just rather cut off from people. I'm not connecting or whatever. So sometimes there's some primary cause and condition. But sometimes we need to be able to name and to be as clear as possible. What are some of the supportive conditions uh, which are there? What in those supportive conditions also needs to change? The third one there, and also an important one, what has been leading up to this? What has been leading up to this? What is it that I did not see and now it's hit me in the face? And the example which I gave in an earlier talk, which one or two of you may have listened to or endured like Will and Radha, was I had a, in the world of love and romance for a moment, had a rather interesting, but I must say not altogether unusual conversation with a, a woman who had, as many Dharma friends do, gone online in one of these uh, dating um, agencies. One of my, my, my dear uh, computer IT person he was a Buddhist monk, as a small example, and for 16 years, from the age of 28, I think, till he was in his 40s, 
And then he found, after disrobing, that he had quite some skills in IT and computers and websites. And he made a great one-liner. He said, after disrobing, um, he found it difficult to live in the real world. Um, so he decided to live in cyberspace instead, <laughs> which I can understand. So he then went online, because there is, some of you might like to use it if you ever need to, a Dharma dating agency all over the, uh, all over the world. And he met a lovely, lovely, lovely lady. I've met her. When he's come around to fix my computer, she's come uh, round. And she was a single mum, teenage boy. And they've been together, now living together. And a few months ago, they got married. They went to uh, 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 Italy for a uh, uh, honeymoon. And, um, and a lovely connection. So this lady, good lady, another lady I was speaking to, she did a bit of dating. There's lots of people do these days. And in the meeting of this particular guy, it was fell over in love, like according to her, like you can't imagine. And apparently he towards her, it was totally full on. They lived in the same town. They couldn't be out of each other's reach. They were kissing and cuddling morning, noon and night, etc, etc. Wonderful, it's the love of her life, all the cosmic language, this is real karma, it's a cosmic connection, it's two souls meeting finally in eternity, you know, all those words that we use there. And after two weeks, two weeks, not two decades, two weeks, he said to her, no, he didn't say to her because he was a coward. He texted her <coughs> and he said, um, uh, I've changed my mind. I'm stepping out of uh, this. There is no need to reply. I don't want to have any more contact ever again. She was absolutely shattered. Shattered there. And she couldn't make out how there could be such a sudden break so it went from existence, non-existence. And she was shattered with all the tears and the sleeplessness and the hurt and the feeling of being betrayed and the distress that went along with it. My question was, in the four conditions, inspired by the Buddha and Nagarjuna, what was leading up to this? There's a causal condition. A supportive condition and an important what was leading up to this could there have been some signals in this case from him which you didn't want to see didn't take any notice of were blind to because the passion and the love and and I said did you sleep together and she said yes I said, well, that adds another extra energy into all of this. I can understand why you feel hurt and betrayed. That in all of this, what wasn't seen? And the Buddha uses the word avijja, means not seeing and not knowing. 
So when something, when we end up suffering or too human, pain, disappointment, hurt, betrayal, anguish, frustration, something wasn't seen in the lead up to the immediacy. And it does take, even in the great passion of love, some signals to alert us, be vigilant. Not be afraid, not be fearful, but listen and be vigilant. And because I hear this story, not once, but in various forms fairly regularly, I suspect that there are some men and women who, as it were, maybe enjoy the chase, enjoy the pleasure and the sensation, enjoy the conquest and then lose interest and split and leaving one person feeling very hurt and very disappointed. I suspect that may be going on quite a lot. And therefore, in something which is important to us, just use this as an example, or it may be somebody who loves living in a particular place, loves a particular work or creativity, and then ends up feeling disillusioned, bored, reactive to, depressed about. In the conditions, what has been leading up to this which was simply not seen clearly enough and early enough that the consequences are complete contrast from how one began. Energy, initiative, passion, enthusiasm, connection, conviction and then, then, and then, then ends up consequent disillusioned, disheartened, feeling of failure, depressed. That's a gradual movement through not seeing. The fourth one, there we go, what's a causal condition? What are the supportive conditions for this? What has been leading up to this? Just, I mean in the moment I'm just applying it to the difficult suffering ones, but the same principle can apply as well to happiness. What really makes you happy? What's the sort of thing that contributes to real feeling of happiness? What are the kind of supportive conditions uh, which contribute to that? And sometimes when people are coming together in real friendship and contact, as, as we are, it actually brings a real happiness. I just had lovely coffee with Sonia and she was uh, mentioning uh, to me that uh, on Sunday uh, recently she went to Judy's uh, women's uh, circle and some 30 women came and uh, Sonia, you know, a single mother, her friendships are important to her and she said this time in the, in the, in the women's circle, Judy facilitates, she said it was just a really wonderful, wonderful time, some really deep sharing was taking place and people contacting with each other and she said she said, I thought, she said, I thought there'd only be eight or nine of us. And then somebody else would come through. And then two or three more women would come in. More and more women were coming. And that forming and coming together, and then, so, and it's the same principle. It contributes to the happiness. 
What's the causal condition? There is an invitation. What are the supportive conditions there? The place, the time, the interest, the topic there. What's been leading up to this? Oh, a sense of there is a need for this. There is the sense of this could be a real support for other, uh, for other people. And then, and, and then the fourth one is what's the primary sense of, of, of that? It could be happiness, that could be the primary sense. It could be uh, friendship, it could be connectedness, it could be inquiry, it could be um, meditation, it could be sharing. That's the dominant condition uh, which is being felt. And that situation, like as a, of, of the women's circle, of the group, or the book, equally, to repeat a little bit, equally applies as well you know, to, our, to our own life. The Buddha says, is saying to us, look at the conditions. And when a genuine change is made, the indication of it is that we feel differently about something. That's the indication. And also, and equally importantly, we think differently. That's how we know. If we don't feel differently, and if we don't think differently, then there is no real change in the conditions. That's the only way that human being knows. And sometimes, and some of us have touched upon this in the time together, there can be, it's very, 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 very common this, um, and Radha and I had you know, suggested, I think very important, that just at the beginning of the day of P, I think one of the things which I hear most, amongst the many things which one hears, in terms of habits and patterns and tendencies, one common one, very, very common, like an epidemic, is worry and anxiety. This one like runs riot in people's inner life in all sorts of ways. So when there is a dominant condition, event, situation, about um, past, present or future, for some people, the immediacy of response to the challenging situation immediately is some worry or anxiety about it. That's the immediate response. And it isn't easy there to ask the honesty or the truthfulness what's the primary cause for this? What's the primary tendency in this direction? What gives support to it? What's been going on for me that leads up to this? What's the outcome? And in those conditions, specific conditions, and as Nagarjuna says, there's no fifth, everything is around this. What needs the change? What is the fresh way of looking quite differently and all that important psychologists and psychotherapists and the Dharma is trying to dig deep enough, doesn't have to be profoundly deep, but dig deep enough 
to be able to look at something in an unproblematic way, no matter what it is. And, and therefore to be able to respond to it differently, to look and what is another fresh way of looking in a completely different way. And if so, as I say, it affects the sensation in the body, it affects the viewpoint, and it affects what we do or what we don't do. And it's at this time where the samadhi and the meditations and the mindfulnesses and the concentrations help a lot as some supportive conditions for us because it helps to reduce the fluctuations in agitation, in speech, in worry and anxiety. And sometimes, and some of you have touched upon this very importantly, there is a sense of enough clarity of seeing and knowing in an unproblematic way. One just sees and knows and it just is not the problem that it was. And that <coughs> seeing and knowing may change the sensation from painful to contentment or pleasant, it may, or the feeling sensation inside around an issue may still be unpleasant, may still be unpleasant because it's a difficult situation and it is unresolved, but the condition for oneself has changed sufficiently enough that despite it still being unpleasant, it's no longer got the power to make a problem with the thought. The other aspect, and uh, finally, then you may have some uh, 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 questions. Um, in uh, the uh, exploration, sometimes in spiritual life, I don't go along with the viewpoint, but it does get hurt. Some will say, I hear the voice uh, uh, not a few times, unfortunately, well, uh, Life or the Dharma or practice or experience is all about learning to live with the unknown. So the view does arise from some, not here, from me, but some people, is some truth in it. What we really know is terribly small and terribly, terribly limited. And of course we are living in a time where it appears that there's a huge outburst of knowledge and information. I mean, even just sitting here, recorder, uh, the iPhone, hopefully for people without an eye, and um, uh, books and words and language and libraries and the internet, and the, and the internet will soon be so big we'll need an internet for the internet it, it, tremendous outpouring there's also of course within all of that increasing amount of necessity with the knowledge 
to specialize. If one just takes the body these days as a small example, the number of specialists just on different parts of the body. And as one doctor said to me uh, at Harvard Medical School once, um, he decided to go into dermatology, you know, the skin. And the reason for it was, he said, it's hard to cure and few people die from it and therefore there's less likelihood of being sued. So he thought dermatology would be a safe specialist option. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, exactly, I had the same physical response, head in hands. You know. But this is thinking, this thinking goes on. <coughs> so we get more and more increased specialist knowledge. And to some degree, it could be said, because here I am as a human being, I have interest in this, that and the other. I read, I write, I explore, I discuss, I look to the internet, um, I'm developing my education, I'm learning about this. And no matter how much our um, system, for want of the better word, endeavours to impose more and more knowledge upon us, no matter how much we squeeze into the mind of our poor children, and I must say, some countries in Europe, let me go off on a tangent here, I'll come back this week, I promise, that there are schools in Europe, to their credit, where children are not starting school till they're six or seven. Unlike Britain, I don't know how it is in Australia, but they're squeezing them in at four or five years of, uh, of age. And the Archbishop of Canterbury commenting on this, said a rather good one-liner, and it's a memorable one. In his Christmas speech, I think it was last year, he said, we are forcing our children to behave like adults, this educational imposing of knowledge and information, while adults are behaving like children. Mm -hmm. Nice one, nice, nice one. So sometimes we look at all the knowledge which is available to us and we see, well, we can only absorb so much and even if we could absorb massive amounts of it, relative to the unknown, it's small. No matter how much our thinkers and our philosophers and our scientists and our politicians and our experts, 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 there, and how much we think, think, the capacity of this little formation in what we can see and know is terribly small compared to what's available. Even in any single subject, let alone more than one subject there. So a person, some people will conclude from this, well what I can see and know is so small Therefore, it's not worth being concerned about. Therefore, drop my mind, because it's a tiny little instrument. And therefore, true spirituality is learning to live with the unknown. Because the unknown is so much bigger and greater than the known. This is not a Dharma viewpoint. It is not.
No special virtue is given, even though it brings some humility, to living with the unknown. The, the, the Dharma is the seeing and the knowing in an unproblematic way, which gives a genuine sense of uh, freedom and being awake to that which comes to us from within or without. And sometimes your lovely voice is here and at other times. When all those raffles have gone away, fears, worries, anxieties, ups and downs, da-da-da, there's some response but it speaks of this, yanati pasati, some of a direct knowing and seeing and being quite clear about it in a way which we can genuinely trust. We really have some trust in. And that uh, knowing and seeing is the profound. It's not one about living with the unknown. And so similarly, when we're speaking of truth, we're really speaking of the truth of the importance of, of, uh, of that, and also uh, speaking in a way of the truth, as I said, of dependent arising, which we can look at and confirm through our own experience. And so in that respect, everything, 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 in a way, confirms the truth. That it doesn't have its own existence. DFP, the book, the rising of the conditions that make us up, the uh, lovely circle with Judy, it doesn't have its own existence, it's form. So in a resp that respect, Everything reveals the truth. And something rather precious about that. That it genuinely is close at hand. It's not my truth or your truth. But it's understanding what forms together, so to speak. And even that those conditions which give rise to, those conditions are what? Arising because of the conditions make that possible. It's extraordinary. And therefore everything confirms the truth. And this truth sets us free. This truth is extremely freeing. Enough. Let's have a quiet minute and if there are any questions. If there are any uh, responses or any uh, questions, endeavour to respond. Yeah, please. About transitioning views, like for example, if in my experience, if I've had a problematic view, yes. but I'm consciously aware that it's not helpful, and I'm yes. consciously 
endeavouring to change it to a more life-giving issue. Yeah. For example, maybe in the context of forgiveness or something. Mm. Um, I found that sometimes I will get that real moment of clarity and I'm in the flow of life and it's feeling all okay. And mm. then maybe in a moment of feeling a bit down, the old problematic view comes back in. Yes. And in my experience, it hasn't just been a quick change of view. It's been this sort of... Um, mm. Wavering of it. Yes. And if, is if is anything uh, that you could say or recommend as far as a more a smoother transition? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. So I'll uh, respond, uh, Jane. It's okay if it's recorded. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, if it's not quite what the question is about, just let uh, just let me know. Um, um, in going back just for a moment to the um, primary uh, conditions, specific conditions here, so the, the causal what one, what's leading up to it, the supportive one, what kind of outcome of all of this. Sometimes we l look at that. Let, let's take forgiveness as an example. The immediate Fourth, the dominant condition may be the view and the feeling and the experiences. What you did hurt me, let's say. Yeah. And then one looks at that and say, well, what was the a cause for the, a causal condition? Let's say from the other person. Well, um, uh, he or she slept with somebody else. They just, you know. And, uh, well, what led up to that? No, 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 And what was someone supporting? And then one says, look, I don't want to carry this feeling of hurt. I don't want to carry this feeling of, of blame uh, there, which I think is, is important. And I want to make a fresh start. I want the two of us to make a fresh start, let's say like that. And there is genuine some sense for that from the other person. It may be, this is the issue, to go from betrayal and hurt to forgiveness uh, can be a rather big emotional leap because it's to turn around the heart from what it, from what it was. If the kind of request upon oneself is too big a leap, you will find more meandering and then the old hurt coming back in different ways. Yeah. So what we try to say is the looking at the conditions there, just as you point, to see what might be a different change of attitude which helps to understand you and the other. Let us put it like that there. And in that change of attitude, it may not bring forgiveness. In fact, the, you can hardly find the word in the, in the text. It may not bring forgiveness, but it may allow, in this case itself, to be at peace with what is. So one looked at the conditions, one's been quite honest about it and clear about it, and to learn to be at peace with uh, it, and from that, take the voice takes the necessary steps 
from being at peace uh, uh, with it there. Um, and, some, and therefore I, always, I do feel with forgiveness, which is a beautiful and precious thing, I think it is better that it comes naturally rather than trying, telling oneself, I should be able to forgive. Um, I, I th think it can be a, a high expectation and it can be very disappointing in the, out in the outcome. So we may want to change, but we've got to be careful of not setting up an ideal, which is a condition which would affect the exploration of the process, of the conditions, which is what we often tend to do. And too high, too big a thought, what we should be able to be. Yeah. Helpful, clear, or...? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes one must be willing and, uh, with this, as the tradition has, I think, wisely and appropriately reminded us again and again, sometimes the change genuinely is sudden. 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 Yeah. So one sees there is a real change, a real change of heart. Use a religious language, one is born again, totally afresh, totally new there. But the tradition has also recognised sometimes it's just gradual. There's a commitment, there is a primary cause of commitment for change, let us say, there. Sometimes it is two steps forward, one step back, that kind of meandering, you know, and struggle with oneself. But in the deep, one knows one is committed to change, mm. or sometimes committed to acceptance. You, you, you had a wonderful job, you really didn't want to lose it, there are government cuts and they say, okay, you're last in, you're first out. This happened to my daughter. Mm. There. And um, yet she's totally committed to the work and working with people with problems. Uh, there. And sometimes one can rage against the system and one says, okay, I have to accept this, find my peace with it, and from that generate some fresh initiative. So sometimes it's very sudden change, which is precious and wonderful. Sometimes it's gradual, and that feeling of two steps forward, one step back. Yes, anyone, please. So in a sense what you're saying is you cannot will forgiveness no, 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 I, I uh, don't think one can. And in the kind of spiritual circles that we move in, there is, and it's a shadow of the teaching, I must say, a tendency uh, sometimes towards idealism. So some of these concepts can, forgiveness is a particularly, I think, a particularly difficult uh, one. Um, I personally don't see anything in myself which calls upon me to um, sometimes forgive the unforgivable. When I'm thinking of the violence and the wars and the terrible suffering that I appreciate very much the Buddha's view that equanimity, being very even-minded and very steady, is something is something really divine. 
and I don't feel this expectation, therefore myself, I should be able to forgive. And I've listened, especially with visits to the Middle East, with the Palestinians and the Israelis, as well as when I was a war reporter, you know, I've listened to pretty some nightmare stories. I don't see why I should be able to, should demand myself to forgive. I, I, I prefer to uh, have enough equanimity and steadiness so there's no reactivity and to see what small steps I can make for change. There. And as I remind my dear Christian friends, when, Jesus, when the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross, he didn't say, I forgive you. He said, Abba, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Put another way, you forgive them, I'm not. <laughs> but it's a strongly, in the religious world, it's a strong emotive concept. Forgiveness. If it comes, as it does, um, free from the act of will, it, it genuinely is beautiful. Genuinely, genuinely beautiful. You know, speaking with a Palestinian mother who's um, uh, the Israeli soldiers came and shot beside her with her holding the hand of her children, her husband, and murdered him. She married two years later. Then they came, and the soldiers came in the middle of the night, then in front of her assassinated her second husband. You know, and that, that, those kind of things takes a lot of inner work and love and to find some place of peace with it and some movement towards forgiveness. But it's a huge task. Yes, anyone, please. Just on yes, sir. No, what about um, we often we often sort of hear about meditative practices yeah. around forgiveness? Yes. So are they useful? You're not asking the best person. I'll try to answer it another way as well. Um, the criteria is not Christopher's voice. Um, it's, the, it's the direct first-hand experience of everybody. That has to, we have to keep trust with that. Uh, I express my concerns. If I look just historically, I'm talking Western for the moment, that there is a certain kind of development or evolution, we might say, into... Um, the world of kindness, loving kindness and forgiveness as uh, an important spiritual meditation practice. There are, there are lots of books out there uh, on this. To give the re reminder, as I just said, for some people who report to me directly, that Christopher, this, these meditations on metta, loving kindness, on forgiveness, have really have changed my life. They've made a huge difference to my relationship with who or what, past or present. There, one's got to really hear 
the voice of kindness and uh, forgiveness which emerges out of these meditations. My concern uh, is one is it can lead or can contribute to an idealism of how I should be always kind and always forgiving. I'm not sure whether it's the always the clearest way of uh, uh, looking. Sometimes I think the, the, direct, the what we call it the hard love or the direct statement or cutting to the bone uh, is important and helps us to uh, uh, wake up there. And generally speaking, I prefer the exp- not easy the exploration of looking at what it is to be human, to look at the conditions, to meditate, to awareness, to not to be afraid to face life. And trust that out of that, love, compassion, friendship, forgiveness will come by itself because there's nothing to obstruct it. And I, generally speaking, apart from my five minutes quick meta meditations at the end of events, that um, I prefer that kind of Frankly, I prefer that kind of process. And I get a little bit concerned in the Buddhist world with this softly, softly, nicely, nicely, sugar-coated meditations which have got no bottle in them. And I'm not sure if that isn't just covering up in the name of niceness. And I just have a doubt about it while for the third time I'm going to say it some people benefit profoundly from these meditations. <laughs> yes, anyone, please. Do you think that, so that's because of what you were touching on the other day um, around the subject of happiness, mm. and um, Kath asked you about happiness, and you said, well, you've always been happy. Generally, principle. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you expanded on that and said that you really didn't in your life have a direct experience of incredible suffering. Mm. So the question is, do you think that those sorts of meditations actually are perhaps really useful for people when there is an an incredible amount of suffering that is just so difficult to shift? Mm. I mean, yeah, all I can speak to as a small servant of the Dharma with the privilege of rather a lot of contact with people in the Dharma world over the last four decades. Mm-hmm. That's the only criteria I've got, so I can only speak in the grossness of the generalities. <coughs> and therefore, <coughs> where there is a lot of negativity, the practice of loving kindness will help to counteract that. Mm-hmm. Where there is a lot of uh, alienation, the practice of compassion will help to counteract that. Where there's a lot of agitation, equanimity will counteract that. Where there's a lot of practice of um, appreciation and gratitude, it will help to dissolve tightness, meanness, stinginess, jealousy, possessiveness, etc. They are genuinely beneficial and powerful um, meditations. Back to repeat, repetition. Though, as you point out, so far, until today, it might change tomorrow. So far, in the first decades of uh, my life, as I move through, 
there hasn't been a lot of suffering, so therefore there hasn't been the need for those kind of practices because I had to have had an easy life. Nevertheless, in working with various people over the years and listen to probably as many meditation experiences of people as anybody else on this planet, yeah, definitely, that some people, the meditation uh, is putting a pleasant coating over events. It's becoming a feel-good factor, which they were never intended. And the very language of those meditations is more and more about me feeling good by giving myself, loving myself, giving myself for meditations. And I, I hear it, because I, constantly enough I have to work with these, some of these teachers. <laughs> Not rather. <laughs> and, and then there's a little add-on at the end about loving-kindness for all other beings. This is very little to do with a divine abiding and the radical nature of love that the Buddha speaks about. And it's more to do with feeling good. And this I protest about. While acknowledging... <laughs> Begrudgingly. <laughs> <laughs> Back to your Please, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank God for that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But um, you're sort of saying that in in problematic areas of our of our lives, when mm. we're clinging, that this looking into we can be um, aided by looking at the four conditions. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I think that really can be a real support uh, because sometimes the, uh, the immediate response to the difficult could be um, one would be blame obviously oneself or other usually sometimes the metaphysic blaming God or whatever for whatever or another popular target of course our parents they're very high up on the scale, thanks to Freud. <laughs> Not with mother and daughter, of course. Yes, I am like I am because my parents, etc. And in a way, the intensity of the view and the belief in it is the shadow which is stopping the inquiry. We've made up our mind. It's all my fault, it's all her fault, his fault, their fault, the system's fault, the past fault, whatever. And we want to be able to look carefully as a collective and individually at what are the conditions and to repeat when something really has changed, one knows it. I mean, to give a small, back to the simple example. So simple, it's almost an insult to listen to, but forgive me. I remember, I remember, donkeys years ago, I used to have two cups of sh sugar in my tea. Two cups? No, no, I mean, yeah, pretty well, but two spoons of a cup of tea. 
And in one of the great acts of renunciation of my life, I decided, with clarity and wisdom, to let go of two spoons of sugar in the tea. Now, every time, for days and days, I had my cup tasted, where's the sugar? Where's the sugar? And it went on, I don't know how many days now, this is, we're talking 30, 35 years ago or more. And one day, always six months later, I poured out my cup of tea, poured out my cup of tea, drank the cup of tea, and absolutely enjoyed the cup of tea. And from that moment, since, there's never been a drop of interest in having sugar in my tea, except in India, of course, because jai, 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 jai. <laughs> there's always the exceptions. Um, and, and the thought doesn't even arise for any sugar in the tea. So sometimes it's gradual, and sometimes one knows it's gone. And similarly, the, the, the sugar of um, love is rather the same. So there's love, and then there's a, a, a change, and the feeling is of missing, and maybe some longing, which I think is quite normal, for the reconnection with, whatever that may be about. I mentioned this because nice reminders of some experiences. <clears throat> anyway, I won't go into all that. Exactly, exactly. It was wonderful to see her. I love her a bit. And, and then there can be, sometimes it's a very clear moment when one knows that that's clear and one's moved on and there's a, a shift, and, it's, and sometimes it's just like that in the moment. Maybe that very day, a week, a month, or, or, or whatever, and one has moved on from. And we're interested in that, what leads up to, what contributes to. We're really, really interested in that process. So once again, it's the movement. You're interested in the movement of of being here to there, to there, yes. to there. We are, and we're also, because it's a fast teaching, interested equally in the non-movement. So at times we just see, there's no movement, no time involved, we just see enough, finished. And there's no movement whatsoever. So we're interested in the sudden, that means the non-movement, and also we're equally interested in the movement which opens up our life in all the ways that's meant by that. Um, that fourth one, the primary sense. The primary, yeah, yeah. Was that the primary sense? The well, I just wrote down primary sense, but I'm yes. not quite sure what I meant. The dominant the is the word. The no. word is dominant. The Domin dominant. Dominant, yeah, the dominant. That's so, it, 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 I mean, the dominant one might be, might be anger. Ah. It might be confusion, it might be fear, it might be ecstasy and joy. Um, it might be 
the unknown. So whatever is whatever sense is the dominant at the, at the time there, and then mirroring back again, what initially seems to be the cause, the primary causal that brings about the dominant there. What are the supportive conditions that bring it about, and what's been leading up to it? And so, Buddha says, even of those, he speaks of, who are genuinely liberated, who have no, let's see, no kind of stuff to have to work on, they've got a lot of you know, stuff to work out, etc., etc. Even for those who are extraordinarily clear, a lot of profound insight, whatever it might be that we describe it as, nevertheless live, including the Buddha himself, with constant vigilance. So there is no resting on the laurels. No saying, I know, I got it, that's it. It's not in the language of uh, these kind of teachings. And I think it's a foolish person who grabs hold of something and says, I got it. Because the inner life will generally, early, sooner or later, kick up a fuss. I got it. And that kicking up of the fuss will probably bring about doubt at some future point or um, if there's any articulation of I got it other people will um, voice their uh, disbelief <laughs> they'll see something to show nah, you ain't got it she ain't got it whatever so let's not grab Anywhere, anywhere. So we um, finish on that point. All right, let's have one quiet minute together. Always a nice place to finish on. <laughs> <laughs>